I am so grateful that you helped us through the entire Divine Comedy because at the time I read Inferno, I talked to people about it. I didn't know a single person who had ever read Purgatorio or Paradiso. Yeah. And, you know, is that is that an accurate, you think? Oh, yes. They're so steeped in Catholic theology. I, I don't know. Wait, I, I got a little bit confused at the end, Mike. I my first response was immediately yes, but I'm not sure that I, I'm, I'm not taking off from you. My experience as a teacher, aware of not only Catholic schools, but schools in general, is that Catholic schools and other schools will, in, you know, in, I mean, the way they approach literature is, to me, awful. UD is the only school that I know of in the country that gives the place to literature they should. They've got a, a, a four-course Litrad one, two, three, four as a basic requirement for all the kids. So the kids go through experiencing the culture, the Greeks, the Romans, the medieval, the, you know, they, they've got, they're not in their heads in abstractions. They actually experience the Greek work in the Iliad or the Odyssey. It's not an idea. It's an actual experience that they experience concretely. So they come out with a different mindset. In, in other schools, the I mean, because of what's going on with education that's been going on for the last 40 years, to me, the literature requirement, most schools will make a one-year or a one-semester requirement that the teachers have to teach God writing and literature in one semester or two semesters. If you thought, if you'd thought about that at all, you'd, you'd say... Do you understand that you're in an asylum and don't think you are? That it's that insane? Oh, Mike, I, I really believe. I mean, I'm saying that honestly. I'm not. I'm not being bitter or sarcastic. I really believe it. You know, these people have these ideas about education, and this is the way to do it. So, in the literature course, they do. They will sample things. They will take a section from the Odyssey. They do this in high school. They'll take, you know, one chapter in the Odyssey and present it so that kids have some experience of Homer and the Odyssey. And they do the same thing with Dante, except always, always in Dante, they teach the Inferno. So across the country, it, it's, it's probably 90% likely, probably more, probably 99%, that the kids going through school, younger kids, may have read the Inferno, and that's all. That will be their experience of the Divine Comedy. And, and, and I'm trusting that you all see, there's no way then they will understand the Divine Comedy. Because there's no way you can understand the Inferno without the Paradiso that makes sense of it. And yet that's what, that's what teachers will give them. So what you're describing is a sad commonplace. I don't know if that answers your question, but... No, it does. I, I just... I was wondering if, uh, you know, the reason it's so little read, the, the, you know, the, the last two books, is that there's some resistance to Catholic theology, whereas most, most Christians recognize the existence of hell, but uh, or purgatory, uh, no. Yeah. You know, I, your question is going to go, I just hope, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about tonight because I've got a sort of stunning picture to present you guys, I hope I can. I hope I can do it justice. You know, and I just think it goes so to your point, Mike. Um, in a fundamentalist Protestant world, 
when you make a choice, you're saved. Why worry about heaven? You're saved. That's it. It's done. What Dante gave us is increasingly lost to our age. Sadly, it's lost to Catholics. Sadly, it's lost to intellectuals. Sadly, um, I'm I'm so glad we we can do it. Um, I want I want to hear what your response to my opening is um, tonight when we start because I'm. You know, I've, I've taught Dante for years and came away tonight feeling like I never, like I never really read the Paradiso. You know, I warned you all at the beginning, it's, it was going to be a tough read, but what I've just come away f with is um, sort of stunning to me, but let's see what you guys think when we get there. Francis, can you make yourself visual? I, I'm not sure if we've met. You wrote a letter, and I couldn't recover it. It was a touching letter. Um, I'm glad you're here. Um, is can you? Is that you? Come back. Is that you? Hi. Yeah. Hi, Francis. This is this is the the rest of the foolish people who've been doing this for some time. And which one's Francis? Um, I've been on I've been on this for several months. I just. You can't see me unless I use my phone. I'm glad. Well, I'm glad to meet you visually because um, it makes a difference. But glad you're here. Glad you're here. Thank you. Glad to see you. Um, some of these people you may regret you will have met. Who's <laughs> that bad I sense of humor? Yeah, my wife was making if real. I had a shoe, I'd throw it at you. <laughs> Maybe the teacher included. Here, let's get started. Let's get started. It's good to see you all. Um, you've got some stunning things to do with, tonight with the Paradiso, and I'm genuinely honest about I hope I can. I mean, I, I, I just so strongly feel I can't do justice to Dante, but even though I've been with him a good part of my life. Any, any prayer requests tonight? Let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. God, what a glory just to be alive. Um, with all that's wrong with our world, um, it is still great. It's a great gift to be living in. I can't imagine um, feeling the worth of life. It, I mean, maybe a weakness of my own without um, going through it with people like this in our group. Um, you guys are all so good, so faithful, so committed. Um, what a great gift to all of us that we can do this work together. Um, for the gift of our life from you, for the presence of your spirit in our lives, that we could end an evening like this together, joining to to um, learn to come closer to you, to find our way to you. <laughs> it's like being fed along a life, um, except it's the bread of life. It's not passing food. So for all that you do to strengthen us in our faith and our powers of reason, particularly um, to hold this ground that we're in, um, to fight this ground, not give it up. The way to you is through the natural order and there's so much 
going on that undermines the natural order. This is where we live. It's where we find our way to you. Help us, not just in our faith, but um, in all our natural powers to hold this ground, um, to do our work here with you um, for ourselves, for those we love, to help bring you to other people who don't see you or who oppose you. Strengthen us, please. Um, help us to take what these um, great poets are giving us and make them living in our lives. Um, we offer these prayers, Christ, in your name, our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, let's continue with Edwin Arlington Robinson. I'm, I'm laughing a little bit, musing on this, because I've really wanted to, you know, have a light poem with you guys for, because we've done some pretty heavy stuff. And I'm laughing because this is at, at an opposite extreme from Flannery O'Connor, whom we are doing in Francis Group and from Dante. But it's still a lovely poem. It's about death. Um, I think all of us are aware that we're approaching that end. Um, it's not as deep or as brilliant as Dante is, but it's quaint. It situates us in this world um, in a lovely way. It's a tender way, so I'm glad to do it. It'll take a while, but let's keep at it. You remember that this is a, a poem by Edwin Arlington Robinson. I've, I've encouraged you all to read the poem Luke Avergel or Richard Corey. Those are the two most famous anthologized pieces by Robinson. Um, he belongs with Robert Frost in that same era. Um, he, he, he wasn't as established or famous. Frost really did something no other poet did, has done, certainly in America. He spoke in a common, a common idiom and so spoke to the common person in America and his appeal was widespread. His appeal wasn't to intellectuals, it was to the common person. So he managed to pull a gathering of of people from all works of life, all fields of life, together to read him. So he made popular the lyric poem when the lyric poem typically belongs to intellectuals. You know, unless you hear the lyric songs that are, you know, on you know, that play on the radio every day, we're out of touch with the lyric. Frost established it as a an important job. Robinson wrote in that same time, and he had the same kind of talent, the same gift, the same approach. He used a very ordinary language, but he talked about um, difficult things just the way Frost did. Frost is deceiving. Um, Suzanne, I think I've said this to you before, Suzanne and I um, were looking for Christmas cards one um, Christmas holiday season and found that Robert, Cross, Robert Frost's poem, Stopping by Woods, which is one of his most famous, Stopping by Woods, on a Christmas card. Because it describes this idyllic setting of this guy going to woods and returning home. On the surface, it looks idyllic, pastoral, Christmassy. It's a poem about suicide. <laughs> and the world doesn't read it. I mean, they just, it, if you, pick, you guys pick up that, or go on, Google it, Stopping by Woods. And watch the turn. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have miles to keep and miles to keep. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. They're seductive, they're a trap, but he has miles to go before he sleeps. And he repeats that. 
but I have miles to go before I sleep. So it's a moment when he's actually entertaining giving up his life because the burden of life is too great. But he's got these responsibilities and goes on. So Frost is really deceptive. He appealed to a common people because his poems seem so idyllic and pastoral and nice. But underneath them, there's a real darkness. Robinson had that same sort of vision and that same sort of heart. So Ed, Edwin Arlington Robinson, Isaac and Archibald, it's about a young boy who's 12 who's remembering um, this, this day when he, um, um, he takes a walk with Isaac to meet Archibald who is dealing with his oats, reminiscing about the day and aware that there's something going on between the two men, that they've reached that age where they're both looking at each other as if there's something odd with each other. Um, that's less and less strange for Suzanne and me. Um, we spend our days going into a room and look at each other and wondering, <laughs> why do we come? What's happening with you? Are you losing your mind the way I am? Mean, you guys were too young to know all that, I, I'm assuming. That I think most of you know that you reach a day where you <laughs> you're just grateful to have the slightest bit of common sense to hold you on and laugh at you because your powers are all going. Anyway, it's that sort of day, this young boy recalling this day and the fondness that he felt for these two old men who think that something's wrong with each of them. Remember when we left off last time, he was taking a walk with Isaac, and he was getting tired, wanted to stop, and Isaac, who's this tough old guy, wanted to keep going. But they do stop and sit down and rest for a while, and that's, that's where we left off, okay? So I'll pick up there. Second part of... They're in the, in the bedroom. Sorry, Doc. Um, okay. Sorry. I don't read well without my glasses. Talk about failing powers. So I proposed without an overture that we be seated in the shade a while, and Isaac made no murmur. Soon the talk was turned on Archibald, and I began to feel some premonition of a kind that only childhood knows. Do you know where the other one is, too? What's... For the old man had looked at me and clutched me with his eye and asked if I had ever noticed things. I told him that I could not think of them, and I knew then, by the frown that left his face unsatisfied, that I had injured him. My good young friend, he said, you cannot feel what I have been so long. You have the eyes, oh yes, but you have not the other things, the sight within that never will deceive. You do not know, you have no right to know, the twilight warning of experience, the singular idea of loneliness. These are not yours, but they have long been mine, and they have shown me now for seven years that Archibald is changing. It is not so much that he should come to his last hand and leave the game and go the old way down, but I've known him in and out so long, and I have seen so much of good in him that other men have shared and have not seen. That I've gone so far through thick and thin, through cold and fire with him, that now it brings to this old heart of mine an ache that you have not yet lived enough to know about. 
But even unto you and your boy's faith, your freedom and your untried confidence, a time will come to find out what it means to know that you are losing what was yours, to know that you are being left behind, and then the long contempt of innocence. God bless you, boy. Um, God bless you, boy. Don't think the worst of it because an old man chatters in the shade. We'll all be like a story that read in childhood and remembered for the pictures and when the best friend of your life goes down when first you know in him the slackening that comes and coming always tells the end. We see this happening. We know it in friends. We know it in ourselves that all these signs come that are intimations that we don't know when the end will come but it's we've got hints of it. Now in a common word that would have passed uncaught from any other lips than his, now in some trivial act of every day, done as he might have done it all along, but for a twinging little difference that nips you like a squirrel's teeth. Oh yes, then you will understand it well enough. But oftener it comes in other ways. It comes without your knowing when it comes. You know that he's changing and you know that he is going just as I know now that Archibald is going and that I am staying. Look at me, my boy, and when the time shall come for you to see that I must follow after him, try then to think of me to bring me back again just as I was today. Think of the place where we're sitting now and think of me. Think of old Isaac as you knew him then when you set out with him in August once to see old Archibald. The words come back almost as Isaac must have uttered them, and there comes with them a dry memory of something in my throat that would not move. This is a little bit like supernatural love when the mother looks back at herself. Remember when she's four? This is a boy recalling something when he was 12, looking back, carrying a memory of death. So it's the theme of memoria, memory, holding on to those things we loved but lost. If you'd asked me then to tell just why I made so much of Isaac and the things he said, I should have gone far for an answer, for I knew it was not sorrow that I felt, whatever I may have wished it or tried then to make myself believe. My mouth was full of words, and they would have been comforting to Isaac, in spite of my twelve years, I think. But there was not in me the willingness to speak them out, therefore I watched the ground and I was wondering what made the Lord create things so nervous as an ant when Isaac, with commendable unrest, ordained that we should take the road again, for it was yet three miles to Archibald's, and one to the first pump. I felt relieved all over it when the old man told me that. <laughs> the old man's got more, what to call it, strength and sort of fortitude than a 12-year-old boy. I felt that he had stilled a fear of mine that those extremities of heat and cold which he had long gone through with Archibald had made the man impervious to both. But as Isaac had a desert somewhere in him, and at the pump he thanked God for all things that he had put on earth for men to drink, and he drank well. So well that I proposed that we go slowly, lest I learn too soon the bitterness of being left behind and all those other things, that was a joke to Isaac, and it pleased him very much, and that pleased me, for I was 12 years old.
That's a lovely poem. So we'll pick up here, okay, when we go on. What happens to the young boy and... What I, are those? No, they're not. I don't want them. They're everywhere. So, let me excuse myself. Just sorry for a second. They're not under there, Doc. You, I looked in the bedroom, in the bathroom, in the kitchen, at the dining room table. I don't know what you did with them. Funny. Hold on, you guys. I'll be right back. Can you look in the bathroom, the bedroom? I looked in the bathroom. Just when she looked. Yeah, I don't know where this is. has three pairs of glasses, and he can only find two of them. <laughs> Don't know. It reminds me of the, uh, the Red Fox character in television show Sanford and Son. He, he had a whole drawer in the kitchen full of readers and he, he whenever he go searching for his glasses he'd go to that drawer and pull out about 15 different pairs and uh, uh, try each one on and finally find the right one. Yep. <laughs> no, I didn't find them. That's Bob's mother and that's good. I think when he comes back, everyone should take their glasses off and present him to the king. <laughs> what? Who said what? Nothing. Is that what? Is that Anne? Yes. <laughs> okay, wise ass. I want to hear what. What did you? Where, where, this. Sorry to to bring you guys into the chaos of our home. This doesn't happen at. I've got two pairs of glasses, and one is for six. It's just comic. I mean, one is 12 inches long, you know, distant. Anyway, I can't find them. <laughs> You'll have to... Oh! <laughs> In the book. <laughs> okay. Um, listen, a couple... Sorry. A couple of business matters before we start. Um, a couple of things. Um, if you got my email, you know that my suggestion is that we do Chaucer. I'm going to just stay with what we've been doing. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, I, if you read my note, you know that um, one of the things I learned in graduate school, I mean, I was such an oddball. When I read Chaucer, there was such an uplifting kind of gladness, joy to his presentation of character, us. He had such a capacity to love people, whatever their faults were. We deal with murderers, adulterers. I mean, there's not a sin that he doesn't look at, but in which he presents through the eyes of charity. It, it's just a, it's a comic treatment you won't find anywhere else. And for me, because at that point we weren't Catholics yet, but on our way, um, it was a revelation because all the critics that I read were sober and serious and pedantic and Chaucer has fun with everything. I mean, he laughs at people. Um, and the reason he does this, I want to enforce this because you guys will appreciate it in ways other people won't. It's because he's got Boethius in him. There's nothing he writes that doesn't reflect what we learned from Boethius. So you guys are in a special place. Nobody in graduate school when we did Chaucer required Boethius. I hadn't read him then. There's no way you can read um, Chaucer well and not have read Boethius. That's how serious it is. Chaucer loved Boethius, he loved Dante, but what he did to me represents, in one sense, the, 
a kind of perfection of Catholic faith that disappears with the Reformation in the 16th century with the Copernican Revolution and the um, Reformation. So when you read Chaucer, it, it's impossible to read him and not have fun. And it's actually impossible to read him and not find Boethius. So you guys should be in for a pleasant surprise. Anyway, what I'd like to do is read Chaucer. We will read maybe six or eight stories. They're all very short. So it's not a hard read at all. They're all easy. They're all funny. You could take Chaucer to the bathroom with you and probably read a story before you, you know, get up and... Um, you can read him in snatches. He's just... He, you know, you can read a story, and some of them you can read in ten minutes. So we'll do Chaucer. We'll probably do six, six or eight stories. I'm not sure. So what I'd like to do is do Chaucer. Pick up, pick up the Penguin edition. It's this edition. Um, it's the Penguin by um, Neville Coghill. Um, Chaucer's Middle English is a different language. I, if um, I don't think I read it to you, but next next time we meet, I will read you some medieval English. I'll read you Chaucer's. I'll read the opening of the uh, Canterbury Tales in Middle English, so you can actually hear Middle English because it's a beautiful language. But it's hard to read, and um, Coghill has given us a wonderful translation. Chaucer's English is close to Shakespeare's and so close to us, but it's it's different enough to present problems. So. Coggill has given us this wonderful translation. It's very close to Chaucer, easy to read, very easy to read, and in Chaucer's rhyme, so it's actually fun. Um, we'll do a couple of stories a night. They're not hard, and um, we'll spend a few weeks on it. What I'd like to do is um, take next week off, um, largely Kay and David. Hello. It's so good Hi. to see you. It's so good to see yeah. you. Really, I missed you guys. So it's away. Yeah, I'm glad you're back. Glad you're safe. Um, um, you know everybody here, so um, it's good to see you again. Where's David? Is he there? Oh, he'll be. He'll be here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You tell him when he comes. I'm marking him late in class. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Um. Chaucer is just a delight. Next week, I'd like to take off um, to give a break, and then we'll start Chaucer. And then from Chaucer, we'll do Shakespeare. We'll do three Shakespeare plays, um, which are, in my mind, absolutely crucial for understanding the modern world. We'll do Hamlet and King Lear and Winter's Tale. Winter's Tale, I think, is Shakespeare's most perfect play on a paradisal experience. It's his rendering of what Dante gives us in the Paradiso, except it's um, it's in a more human context. Um, but it's it's a stunning, it's an amazing play. Um, we'll do that. Um, so next week off, and the following week we'll do Chaucer. I will send all of you a list of the Chaucer tales we would read. And I'll give you information then. My suggestion will be to read the prologue. It's the prelude to all the tales. The, the Canterbury Tales is about a group of people who are going to on a pilgrimage to the shrine of St. Thomas of Canterbury. He was martyred. You know that he was killed by the English king or um, 
the English king had him killed. Or um, There's different reports on that, but it's fairly clear that he had him killed. They're going on this pilgrimage. So it's about a group of pilgrims on a pilgrimage. They're all unified. Their faith is unifies them. They're one. They're, the Reformation has not taken place. We're in a world that is completely Catholic. And the arrangement on the part of the host is that they all tell a tale on the way there and on the way back. Whoever tells the best tale will get a free meal. So we see these people, cantankerous, argumentative, ready to fight, humorous, chivalrous. It's just, it's just a wonderful mix of an English people, all of whom are Catholic. Um, it's, it's a scene that has disappeared from our world after the Reformation. So it shows us the height of something Catholic that, that we've lost. What you'll feel, I think, when you get out of it is um, how aware you will, you will be of how Puritan we've become if you set our world next to Chaucer's. Chaucer has no scruples about using foul language, does it all the time. Um, he's, he's not overly scrupulous. Um, some Catholics get really offended at his language. I, I think it's hilarious, but um, anyway, he's, he's just fun. You'll enjoy him. I'll send you a list. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention tonight, I, um, Bob, in the letter that he wrote to me, I think today or yesterday, I can't, said that he, want, he and Karen wanted to go on. Um, I'm, I'm glad for that. But he suggested taking a break once in a while. And Bob, I have to say online, um, um, I'm, I'm more grateful than I can tell you for your better wisdom. And I'm saying that with absolute honesty. My tendency is just to go at it as a teacher, you know, in a routine of two days a week, three days a week. And I've sort of carried that in. And at times it gets exhausting. It gets, because I'm trying to do this writing that I've been working on, this book that and I just, I, I don't know why I didn't think of the idea, this tendency in me to just sort of plug ahead. But I was so grateful, genuinely grateful for your suggestions. So what I'd like to ask of everybody is, if you would offer your suggestions about what we do, my, my response to your suggestion, Bob, was that we take a break in the middle of any long work. Chaucer's not long, but, you know, may, maybe six or eight weeks. So... Four, four weeks into Chaucer, take a break. Just stop and go on. When we're doing a play like Shakespeare's, I think we can do a Shakespeare play in three, three weeks, two or three weeks. Take a break after each play. If we get to a longer work again, we'll just break it up and take a, a break. We can do that, or we can just take an automatic break once every, you know, the last week of the month or something like that. My preference would be for the first Connie, I know you also suggest, so the first, by the first I mean, try to protect the integrity of the work. So halfway through Chaucer, we'll just take a break. When we're doing Shakespeare plays, we'll do a play and we'll take a break and then do another. And, and that way we can stay focused and not break it up. Um, you asked a question about um, taking a break over summer. I'd like to hear everybody's thoughts on that. Um, I'm going to give something away on myself here, and maybe I shouldn't, but um, I'm glad to do that, Connie, genuinely glad. 
I'm a little, I'm not sure that I would be at ease taking a whole summer only because, you will laugh at this, you and Suzanne, um, I'm not sure how much time I have left, and you guys can laugh all you want at that. I, I feel a real commitment to trying to finish this with you guys, that there's a tradition here to unfold. So I'm glad to take breaks because I think it would be good for all of us, and particularly for me. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit guarded about taking a whole summer, but I'll leave that to you guys. What I'd like to do is ask all of you to let me know what your thoughts are, what your suggestions are, and we'll go ahead on your, on your better wisdoms. Um, anyway, Bob, I'm really grateful for your suggestion. I think it was so wise, so wise, and I'm glad you made it. Glad you made it. Um, so I think you saved all of us, and probably me. Um, so that's that. Those are the plans. Um, I'd rather not discuss them now because we could we could go everywhere with them. It, just let me know, would you all? But pick up the Penguin edition of the Canterbury Tales by Neville Coghill, and read the prologue and the first story called The Knight's Tale. You'll enjoy it. It's about Theseus, so it takes us back to the Iliad, the Odyssey, the ancient works. This is Chaucer's reworking of our founding. So it goes to the basis of Western civilization. This is us. Chaucer's going to us. Except now he's not approaching it as a pagan. He's going back to that founding and renewing it as a Christian. So he's going to give us a different view on our founding as Western Civilization, which was a very, very important book. Anyway, we'll start with that, okay? The Knight's Tale. It's the first tale. What you'll see is um, there's a sort of order to the tales as they unfold. This will be the first one because this comes from a knight. In some sense, he represents the very best of this English Catholic world. So we're going back to an ancient pre-Christian pagan world but we're, we're being shown that world through the eyes of somebody who's Catholic. So it will teach us something about our Catholic faith. Okay? I think that's... Oh! And... Oh, yeah, no, I did. Um, um, I talked with Father Flynn last week. And Father Flynn is really eager to get us back in a classroom. So um, I've got to talk with Allison to see if I can... If, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure what they're going to do, but to see if we can make that happen so we can be back together again in the body. I would be so glad for that, just genuinely glad. And if we do that, what I'd like to do very early on is have a, um, a buffet again, a potluck, and a movie. Um, and Father says no, we'll have it here. If Father's not going to say no, but Suzanne is saying that I'd, I'd like to, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that when fa if Father pushes it, what will happen is what happened last time, that we'll get a lot of, or we'll get some newcomers, some people who will be interested in seeing the movie and sharing a dinner. And, um, and um, Michael's agreed to finance it all. <laughs> <laughs> it's your idea, Mike. you got to do this. <laughs> all right, okay, I'm calling your bluff. Calling your bluff, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. 
<laughs> oh God, oh, help me, please help me somebody. You know that it was a potluck and we all brought food. So, I mean, that's what we do again. It was a wonderful potluck and, I, and I'm sure it'll be a good one again. I will have it here if Father says no. <laughs> Father's not going to say no. Well, but, the bishop might. Well, yeah, the bishop's not. Anyway, they have no control of what goes on in this house, this government of ours. And we'll see. I'll let, you, I'll let you know. I'll let you know what's going on. But I'm hoping we can meet and enjoy a meal together and have a meal and visit. It would be, it would be great. And I'm grateful to you, Michael, for your suggestion. Um, you and Bob are... <laughs> I'm glad somebody's keeping the teacher in this group honest. Okay, let's. Any questions that we can handle briefly? Because um, I'd like to get to Dante and see if we can finish him up here. Any any questions about the? Yeah, Anne, go ahead. Just a quick suggestion. I think if we're going to be going back there and we're starting a new work, especially since we're not going to be meeting next week, it would be great if they would put in the bulletin again. Because there may be some people who are wanting to come back. I'm thanks. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'll get. I'll get. I'm going to call Alice. I was planning to call her tomorrow, so I'll I'll get to her about that. I think that's a great suggestion, um, and I know Father will push it. He he is so in support of what we're doing. Um, he wants to see it spread, and he wants to get people back together. So I, I know he'd support it, um, and it would be great to see new people. So. Um, it's going to need a push because there are going to be some people who are going to object to Chelsea. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, did you uh, did you hear Suzanne? She she's expressing a concern that some people will still be uncomfortable about getting together and you know all and, of that. And There's, taking on Chaucer. Well, we'll see. Anyway, I'll get back to you guys. Okay, um, mm -hmm. but for now, let's plan not to meet next week. Um, you've got to jump on thought on uh, Chaucer. You'll love him. I mean, generally, pick up the copy, order it, get it right away. Um, it's delightful. It's just delightful. Um, I'll send you a list of the stories that we'll do. When you read the prologue, you can read the whole prologue. It's just an introduction to all the characters. It's a little Don't character sketch it. of each one. Um, you can read the whole prologue or, or just focus on those characters that we'll read, whose stories we'll read like the knight or the prioress or the monk or, you know, whatever characters. But I'll, I'll send you that right away. So um, look for that and, and pick up a copy right away and read it because you'll, you, you'll, be, you'll be delighted. It's, it's, just a, it's just a good work. Okay, let's, let's go back. Um, I want to go back to where we left off with Connie because I, I loved her response. And... Um, but I want to go back, I want to start with that. It's on page, I think, 567. Um, yeah, 567, this is in Canto 30. I left Connie's response on it. Um, remember, this is the point at which Dante and Beatrice enter the Imperium. So they're in presence of the mystical rose, the body of Christ in heaven. Um, and the, um, it, 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 it's depicted in terms of two halves, the Old Testament and New Testament, with all the holy souls, the saints, the apostles, all of them there in the presence of God. And we've been talking about... Oh, can you bring me those on the, on the right? 
we've been talking about um, the, the, the various conditions that we've been experiencing in the journey up the Paradiso. And, oh, sorry, not the papers. Um, sorry. Um, and it was a wonderful place to leave because it was one more description that left us aware that left us aware that we're in a strange world. And it's, it's, it's that that I want to try to describe tonight in a better way than I've done. But let me read that passage again because it'll be a takeoff to... Um, sorry, Doc, can you give me the Shakespeare book? The what? The Shakespeare book, the big one, sorry. Where is it? Yeah, right there, on the bottom. Or no, here, it's right here. Sorry. God, thanks. Um, um, there's something am amazing that Dante's doing that no other poet has done, and I feel a special responsibility to try to do justice to that tonight. I want to I want to start where where we left off. Canto 30 page 567. Remember they enter the Imperium and Dante has this description. It's on 567. They're near and far nor adds nor takes away for where God rules directly without agents the laws of nature in no way apply. You remember I gave you that other translation. It's um I can't remember the, the translator's name, but I think it's so much better than this one. In the other translation, the, the, the translator has r runs it something like this. There neither nearness nor distance added or took away. Hold on to this, everybody, because it's absolutely crucial. There neither nearness or distance added or took away, because where God rules immediately, the laws of time and space don't apply. I'm going to repeat that. Hold on to that. There, in the presence of God, because remember from Boethius, and we know this from our faith, in God there is no past or present. We're in immediate time. I've, I've done everything I can to try to open that up for everybody. In the Trinity, one is not less than two and two not more than one, because we're in a metaphysical world that's not determined or bound by the laws of time and space as we know them. God's eternal. He's infinite. When Christ goes back to the Father, he takes a body, takes a, a human body. This is the great mystery at the center of our faith. He takes a body, the incarnation, God taking on a body. He takes a body back with him. And he resumes his place in the Trinity. Infinite. Not bounded. I hope everybody's getting that. He can't be a human being in the way that we know humans here. He's a God. So, and, and it, I th it's crucial for something like the Eucharist because we understand the Eucharist to be Christ feeding us out of his own body. How could he do that unless he were infinite? I hope everybody's following here. If, if, stop me, please, if, I'm, if you've got questions because this goes to the center of our faith. How could he feed us infinitely? All, some mass is going on at every moment somewhere on the earth, always. 
and they're offering the Eucharist. How can God supply people out of his own body unless it were infinite? The rationalist is going to say, wafer? A drink of wine? Are you nuts? Is everybody following? So the image, the description here um, was there neither nearness nor distance added or took away because where God rules immediately, the rules, the laws of time and place don't apply. So if you're, let's say, a, a thousand miles away in heaven, there is no distance. Yeah? I think, I mean, I was so glad for your response last week, Connie. I just thought it was so appropriate. I loved it. <laughs> you know, we're all there. You know, nobody's going to be in the back row, which is my great complaint, you know, from my story last week. Nobody's going to be in macro. We're all immediately present to each other. So it's one more indication of all the things that we've been looking at since we entered the Paradiso. Now let me stop for a moment because that to me is profound. I, I, any questions about that or any comment anybody wants to make? Connie, do you have something to follow up? I loved your comment last week. Well, I was very, I was just so happy to hear that because I often wonder, you know, I, I, I guess I did think there was distance, um, especially with the different scenarios of the moon and Jupiter and Saturn and the sun. And that, I guess that's the part I, I don't really, I'm not connecting just yet. Hold on, because that's exactly where I'm going. Bless your soul. Okay. Bless your soul. Okay. Bless your soul. That's exactly where I'm going, Connie. Okay, good. Is everybody, does everybody understands this passage, the implications of it, for what Dante's showing us, okay? Now hold on to that. Um, oh, Christ. Hold on, sorry. I hear running water. Oh, it's my pool. I'm sorry. I'll turn. No, 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 no. Don't. I'm just makes me want to jump in a bath or something. No, Connie, it's not a bother at all. I want to. I want to read two passages which you guys have all already experienced, but I want to read them in this context. Okay, that in the context in which we're talking, I want to use them as a takeoff for what we're about to do. In in Canto. 31 of the Purgatorio. Okay. Um, Canto 30, I think it's. Yeah, on page 373. You don't have to go there, but you can mark it. It's Canto 31. Remember, this is when the um, um, Dante has turned. To Virgil, when Beatrice appears and Virgil disappears, and Beatrice approaches him in this Beatrician pageant, which symbolically represents the entire tradition, the history of the Church, the Gospels, um, um, the virtues. It, it's a it's a allegorical. It's, it's like a, um, a tableau of the Church in all of its richness. And there's a moment when Beatrice is looking at the eyes of the griffin, you remember, because the griffin is dual-natured, um, eagle and lion. He's an image representing the dual nature of Christ. 
she looks in the griffin's eyes and Dante looks in her eyes and he has this expression. This is on the page of 373. Imagine, reader, how amazed I was to see the creature standing there unchanged, yet in its image changing constantly, and while my soul delighted and amazed was tasting of that food which satisfies and at the same time makes one hungrier. That image is an image of what happens in eternity. People think of eternity as a static condition. It doesn't change. That's not the image Dante gives us. What he says is that when you enter, and we've talked about this, when you enter heaven there's this indwelling, this multiplication of lives. And um, He says that when you enter, when you look at Christ, he answers every desire you could possibly have and sets you on longing for more. It won't stop. It will go on infinitely in this infinite present. Yeah? That's consonant with the passage I just read. There neither nearness or distant matter took away. So when he looks into the eyes of Beatrice, he feels all of his desires satisfied and yet feels them being set on for more. Okay? Now, this is from Anthony and Cleopatra, which is one of the plays we started with. Um, and I imagine you won't remember this, but let me recall it for you. Remember at the end of, because as I was presenting the play, I, I was suggesting that Shakespeare's dealing with the Roman world just before Christ to show that God was already working in the world to bring some love into that world that that world was not aware of. So this strange love between Anthony and Cleopatra sets them apart because according to Caesar, you do things out of expediency, you fight, you conquer. He wants to, he wants to um, conquer Cleopatra and take her into Rome and display her as a conquered object, a trophy. That's the last thing she wants to be, is a trophy. She uses that word, he wants to boy me. I love that. She uses boy as a verb. He wants to boy me. She's not going to let it happen. If you remember the play, there's everything feminine about her. Um, the priests call her riggish. <laughs> She's, But anyway, Anthony and Cleopatra, with all their struggles in this Roman world, come to this love that nobody in that world recognizes. You don't do that in that world. Shakespeare's showing us that something was there, even if people didn't see it. It's one of the reasons I chose that play, because early on, my concern was to to learn to see Christ where we don't ordinarily see him. So here's Shakespeare going back to a Roman world and showing us something amazing. If you go back to the play in memory, you'll remember that um, Anthony kills himself, takes his life because he thinks Cleopatra has taken her life. And if you remember, he asks his servant, Eros, to do the job. And Eros can't because he loves his commander too much. He takes his own life. When Cleopatra takes her life, her maidservants are so stricken, so overwhelmed that they take their own. One of them dies just from love, just from watching her mistress. So something, a new kind of love is entering the world. It's one the world doesn't know anything about. Cleopatra's arrested, and one of the Roman soldiers come to her, Dolabella, and she's aware what Caesar wants to do with her, and she's not going to let it happen. 
and she takes a moment with Dolabella um, Dol- and describes the dream she had of Anthony the night before. Okay, that's where we are in the play. Anthony's gone. She's about to take her life. She has this vision of the man she loved. Okay, and come came to love in a way the world doesn't quite understand. Um, so she asked Olabella, um, um, do you know me? He says, yes. Um, you laugh when boys or women tell their dreams. Is it not your trick, Dolabella? I understand. I don't understand what you're saying, Cleopatra. I dreamt there was an emperor, Anthony. Oh, such another sleep that I might see, but such another man that I might dream that dream again to have that back. Dolabella, if it might please ye, we're going to see this again and again when we do Shakespeare, when we pick them up. At the end of these plays, something happens to certain people, and all the rational people dismiss it. It's going to happen in Lear, it's going to happen in Hamlet, because something happens in people's suffering that helps them to see something other people can't see. So I can approach the cross that opens up a way of the world that typically we close down to ourselves. He wants to put her off, if it might please ye. His face, so she goes on, She's not going to be put off. His face was as the heavens, and therein stuck a sun and moon which kept their course and lighted the little O, the earth. Most sovereign creature, Dolabella is trying to strain her calmer because he thinks she's going mad. His legs bestrid the ocean, his reared arm crested the world. His voice was propertied as all the tuned spheres, and that to friends. But when he meant to quail and shake the orb, he was as rattling thunder. For his bounty, there was no winter in it. No coming to an end. It's exactly Dante's image of looking at the griffin and having his desires fulfilled and knowing that they would keep going on. Um, When he meant to quail and shake the orb, he was as rattling thunder. For his bounty, there was no winter in it, and autumn twas that grew the more by reaping. The more you harvested, the more it came back. Because the plentiness cannot run out. It's exactly like the Eucharist. His delights were dolphin-like. They showed his back above the element they lived in. In his livery walked crowns and crownettes. Realms and islands were as plates dropped from his pocket. Dolabella says, Cleopatra, Cleopatra, Think you there was or might be such a man as this I dreamed of? He's going to say no. He thinks he's she's out of his mind. You guys following? Those are two examples, one from Dante, one from Shakespeare, in which we have a figure very much the way Mary's presented when she's described as being above the moon and striding the stars in Revelation. So here's where I want to go and see if I can do this. When we entered the Paradiso, we entered a world of faith. Yeah? We, we all, I've been pressing, we live in a world in which faith and reason are separated. That's true for the Protestant world, not true for us. But my concern is the Catholic has become infected by that. He approaches the world the same way. We live in a world by our faith in which faith and reason are, are dovetail each other. Um... 
When we enter the Perdiso, we entered a world only available by faith. That's why Virgil couldn't go on. But it's a world that's perfectly open to reason. So at every level, Beatrice can say something to open a mystery using reason. Will we get to the end of it? We'll see tonight. No, we won't because the mysteries are too deep when we look at the Trinity. It'll be the last image Dante shows us. But up until that point, we've constantly got people, guides, teachers, helping Dante to see something in a mystery that's intelligible. Because God himself is intelligible. He's reason himself. Where there's mystery, there's more to know. The modern world has got that backwards. Where there's mystery, there's nothing but chaos. The Catholic says, no, where there's mystery, there's always more to be known. Because God's perfectly intelligible. He is light itself, reason itself. So here's where I want to go. This is my point here. We've looked at all of these terms, transhumanized, Dante's ascending, being somewhere before he even knew that it was happening. The theosis, God becoming man so that man could become God. The indwelling, all the reflexive verbs, in othering, encompassing, in ewing, in mean, that humans become one with each other, like the multiplication of the fish, so that heaven becomes more expansive. Connie's, you know, concern. There, there is where there is where there neither nearness nor distance added or took away. How can it? We're in God's kingdom, where He rules immediately. There cannot be a situation like in our world. Language is inadequate to express it. Where the eagle said, "I." And they, we heard, we and ours. Because in heaven, we're in a different dimension. Time and space aren't the same. Now here's where I want to go with this, because it, to me it's extraordinary. We've been following Dante in this journey, experiencing with him, yes? One planet after another. We live in a world in which things are bounded everywhere. We put water in a cup. Yeah, it's bounded. There is no binding like that in heaven. The, the rules of time and place don't apply. So if we can read the we can read the Paradiso like an intellectual, and we can get trapped on an intellectual plane and say how intellectually nice or how challenging or it's too hard. I don't want to read it. The whole point is we've entered a realm of faith in which we will never see the world the same way again. And it's not because reason won't have anything to offer us, because it will. It will deepen our powers of reason. That's why I keep going back to that example. When we take the Eucharist and go out to the parking lot, where are we? What do we see? If we see with eyes of faith, will we see the world the same way again? Now here's where this is going, because it's stunning. Dante's taking us planet by planet because there's a succession no, it's because he's got to show us the whole of what will be ours or anybody who goes to God. St. Thomas's line, the human person is the greatest thing in creation. Mary's described as striding the moons, the heavens. 
Dante looks in Beatrice's eyes when she looks at the, be- at the griffin and has a desire that's satisfied and still set on for more. Cleopatra has a dream of Anthony where he bestrid the universe. And that lovely image of, you know, a harvesting that keeps reaping. The human person is greater than the whole of the entire physical universe. The problem is, we see each other so much. I was talking with Suzanne about it. When we sit down to dinner, we're in this little house, you know, the room behind us, kitchen and another room. And in one sense, certainly in Dante's universe, this is so crucial. We're these puny little things. Puny little things. But Christ thought enough of our character to take it, our nature to take it on. He brought a whole divine dimension into our human nature, took it back with him. What Dante's showing us is that when this journey of faith is over, we're going to look at the entire universe like it's this small thing because the human creature is so extraordinary. God thought enough of it to let a divine being become one with it. So what, um, what I want to do is go back through, the, through the, some of the last cantos we went through, but I want to reinforce this point. When Dante gets to the back of the universe, he's looking at the whole of creation. It's absolutely crucial to see that. That's a view beyond us, right? We're in our little living rooms on our couch with a TV. Whatever's going on, we drive around in a little car. In heaven, <laughs> there are no such things. There neither nearness nor distance added or took away. Everything will be immediately present, the entire universe. We won't see things the same. So my point is, our faith opens to our faith in Christ. It's like a door. He calls himself the door. It opened to this great universe that he himself created. And once we enter it, we enter that world by faith. If we take reason seriously, like Beatrice and Benedict and Bernard and people that Dante meet, um, we discover that there's a whole world of rationality of beauty and order and goodness in all of it. Do we see it? Is there somebody there to help us? Dante did. Beatrice did. Virgil did. So I hope, I hope that's clear. That when we get to the back of the universe, what Dante is showing is there's a whole universe that's offered to us through faith that is perfectly intelligent. We can make sense of all of it but it's far greater than anything we know here. Because here we tend to see things bounded by time and space. And Let me stop. I hope I've done justice to that. Is everybody clear on what, I'm, what, Dante, what I think Dante's... If you think about it, that's what he's doing. He's opening a whole universe. Well, let me put it there. If he just stopped with Picarda, would we have seen everything? And can you imagine being with God and not seeing everything? We see in part. Paul said we see, you know, darkly. Are you all following? 
If he'd stopped with any of them, we would have been left with this partial view. He's got to take us through everything. So when we get to the end of it, we see that this is this amazing thing being offered us. Do we see it? Is our faith great enough? Do we use our powers of reason to enter that faith? To help us to see what's there? Let me stop. Because I'm... Any questions about that? Is that clear? Connie... Give me a response. Does that well, answer your concern? Because I know you had a concern. Well, yeah, no, I, I see. So um, the difference, even though, you know, it, the, it started at the moon and then we went to Jupiter, Saturn and all that, it's just um, so that we could, I guess maybe I didn't get it, but... Um, yeah, and I, I'm not sure, Doctor. Connie, you know, let's see how to put this. I'm not going to. You know that when you were a little girl, you only see, saw things in part. You know, yeah. put one step in front of another, you know, walk out the door, go to school. As you've aged, you're more capable of seeing homes. You get holes. You, you have a home. You've got children. Your world has expanded. But you know in this world, our world, the one we live in, the, the world, I'm in, I'm in a study, you're in your backyard, Bob and Karen are in their, you know, we're, we're in a world conceived of in terms of parts, material parts. In heaven, that world is not like that, where God rules immediately, the, the laws of time and space don't apply. That was that passage, you know, that we ended on last week. So there is no back row, there's no strap. You know, Picard, remember at Moon, she's as much present and as perfectly happy as everybody else, even though they're different degrees different of... Levels, like different levels, yeah. But it, so doesn't, it doesn't stratify, there's no class, there's no separation. Uh -huh. You're in the presence of God, everybody's one with his will, you're in beatitude. Everybody is blessed. Here in our world, we conceive of things in parts. You know, we're just these little human beings. The whole purpose of what Dante's done is taking us on this journey is to show us there's this great whole that's available to our faith. Imagine a modern rationalist who does not have a faith. He'll look at this great universe and say, human beings are these shrunken little things. They're atoms. Dante, a Catholic, Dante's at the height of the middle, Christian Middle Ages right now. Dante's saying, no, the greatest thing in creation is the human being. The greatest thing. He's great. St. Thomas said, he's greater than the entire physical universe. Now, put that in front of a rationalist. He's going to say, are you kidding? The universe goes on infinitely. <laughs> human beings are these puny little things. They'll die. Our faith says, no, we die. And... And as Dante showed us, our faith opens on the whole of the universe. It's showing how rational, how beautiful it is, amazing things going on. And ultimately it takes us to a point where the whole is present to us. So the whole way of looking at the world that defines our existence here radically changes there. Anybody else? Anybody with a thought or question or Michael? 
Well, Bob, this discussion somewhat reminds me of, uh, you know, when we were in Boethius, Boethius spends a great deal of time getting us to uh, stop thinking of God as being bounded by time, so that if God uh, understands that I, uh, what may happen in the future doesn't mean that he has destined it, it's just that he is unbounded by time and it seems like uh, uh, Dante was sort of taking that same line of reasoning when he spoke about uh, that in heaven there is no distance, no forward or behind, no near or far. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trusting everybody, you know, that's a hard concept to grasp. It's so unnatural to us because we're bound by time. Let me, let me add another thought, too, here. We're corporeal creatures. We have a body. Uh, this is so serious to me. We have a body. We have a body. In our world, I believe we're encouraged to think in terms of abstractions, to get outside of our bodies, right, to live in ideas, probabilities. Mothers strap in their kids on the probability that an accident, or laws can be created requiring that mothers strap in, you know, on a probability. We live in terms of abstractions. But as corporeal creatures, we're immediately related to our concrete world. This desk, this time, this moment right now is already passing. It's gone. We're in the next moment. The desk is in front of me. Connie's underneath the, whatever that shade is, that, you know, that, Bob and Karen are in their, you know, we're all in a concrete world. We're incarnate creatures. We're not angels. We don't live in abstractions. Dante took what Boethius taught him and made it concrete. He, he makes us aware that we, we're not angels. We don't live in abstractions. As incarnate creatures, we have a nature, the same nature that Christ took on, we experience things concretely. When Beatrice and Dante are going up heaven and Beatrice is reading Dante's thoughts, it's not an abstraction. She's real. He's real. They're concrete. She knows what he's thinking. It's concrete. It's specific. When we get to the end of it, we're seeing faith takes us into this extraordinary world that's rich with intelligibility. And he's using his mind, what he's learned to understand, to help fill out, help us to enter that mystery. And the ultimate result of it is, we see that the human being is this extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And the reason I'm stressing this as much as I can tonight is that we live in a world that reverses that. We think of the human being as nothing. He's a product of forces over which he has no control. He's the shrunken creature. That's for Darwin, that's for Freud, that's for Marx. Freud makes us this product of these, we have no free will. We're a product of these sexual perversions. Darwin says we're a product of these forces, these laws. The human being is shrunken. Our Catholic faith is the only way of looking at things that starts with the belief that the human person is this extraordinary thing made in God's image. And God so loved him, God so loved him, that he sent his son 
to redeem him. So Dante's doing everything he can to show this extraordinary richness to what God made and what our faith opens to us. All these mysteries that are full of intelligibility. They need, they need to be worked. We need to work at helping them make them real. You know, think about Christ. I mean, in his mission on earth, he, he never stopped teaching. You know, he never did. I mean, he was constantly giving parables, trying to explain things to his disciples. And by the way, in case it's discouraging, how often did they get it? No, truly. I mean, it took a long time, you know, and, and, it, and it finally took a point where he had to die and come back. And, but their whole life was constantly learning. You know, he was constantly showing them something. Let me stop because I want to. Um, any, any thoughts or comments? Anne, I know you've got something on that mind of yours. Well, I do, and it does tie in, but I'm not sure exactly how much. I'm going back to what you said the other day in church, and you were talking, you asked whether our routines, the things that we do, if, if, we, see, if we feel that we are part of that order. Oh, right. The divine right. order. Right. And I had a moment... And it was most extraordinary in the fact that it was so ordinary. I was in my early 30s. I'm so glad. Uh, washing dishes, looking out the window. Oh, bless your soul. Bless your soul. My toddlers were playing. My husband was working in the yard. And I had this insight that God's in his heavens, all's right with the world. It was just this incredible feeling that after all of these years... It, I'm still struck by it, and I think that it was a moment of the type of thing that we're talking about. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. What I hope, my hope is tonight that it won't just be limited to a kitchen and you know your husband. That that when we have these moments, we realize that there is this whole universe, and Dante's taken us to the back of it. So, or, or, you know, to go back to the phrase that Connie likes so much that, that I, I love, you know, neither nearness nor distance, that, that that's a condition so unreal to us in so many ways. That's, that's why it's a matter of faith. But the amazing thing about our faith is the way our reason can make sense of it. You know, neither nearness nor distance added or took away. That's a stunning description. But, we've, you know, we've been dealing with stunning things all along, indwelling, language, Entering a moon, bodies occupying it, you know, strange things are going on. So either we're in a fantasy world and Christ was a madman and didn't know what he was talking about or doing, or there are extraordinary things going on all the time and they're a part of our faith. Connie, I'm struggling here. Help me out. No, I think that I have it. It's just that so these different, uh, can I call them levels? You know, the moon and the sun. and Are those different levels? Is that what they're called? I mean, the, so basically they're not, it's not going to be known to us that we're 
you know, stand far away from 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 the face of God. Basically, we're not going to want to be higher. We're not going to because it, it's all that one that oneness. We're all we're all yeah. together. It's all yeah. yeah. Connie, the, maybe a better way to put it is. Dante's showing us part by part by part by part to reveal something. I mean, I, this is so important. If you just believe you're saved, it's all done and over with. You know, you're saved. What Dante's showing us is that there's so much, there's so much to our faith. And he takes it part by part by part, not because in heaven they exist as parts, because they don't. Right. But because of our minds and the fact that we learn part by part, step by step. You know, when you start when you start walking a child, you take you take steps. When you enter your faith, it's you don't know everything. I mean, I, I it's a stunning thing for Suzanne and I. I mean, we entered the I was raised Greek Orthodox. My faith was serious to me. When we became Catholics, we entered a new world. When we look back now, from what we know now to that beginning. I, I mean, honestly, it's overwhelming to me. I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. I can't imagine our world without our faith, and and the things that have been given to us over time. Were they not there in the beginning? Sure, they were there. Did we see them? <laughs> no. Could we experience them all at once? No. You know that, Connie, because you're not the same person you were ten years ago. No. Yeah, in your faith. Right. So Dante's just taking us part by part by part because there's no way to present if we go okay let's say this Dante and Beatrice leave purgatory they set off and then in the next scene it ends the paradiso and it says they're neither nearness or add distance added or took away would that have any meaning for any of us if you leave pur purgatory and jump to that and get, ri get rid of everything in between it would mean nothing it only has the meaning it does because we've gone through all of this to, to experience the richness of this and seeing there's so much there and there's no way we could have done it. I, I so admire you guys. Is there any way you could have done this without patiently going through chapter by chapter by chapter? No. And you know, and I know, and I think you guys know better than most people, Mike alluded to it, most people won't read the Paradiso. They're going to stop at the Inferno. And if they do read the Paradiso, they're going to blow it off and say it's too intellectual. And the, one of the points I was making earlier is if you live it, if you read the Paradiso at the level of the intellect merely, you'll say how smart, but how foolish, because our whole world has changed. We don't look at the universe the same way anymore. New physics. I've, I've tried to argue that doesn't matter. And it's not because we don't have new physics, because we do. The whole point is. We've entered a world of faith, and Dante's helping us to grow in that faith by helping us to understand some things as we go along. If we got to the end and just went from earthly paradise to there, neither nearness or distance added or took away, what would we see? Nothing. So he's shown us how rich this faith is that's ours. And I'm, I'm saying this because, you know, I think about the teachers who teach the Paradiso and leave it at, at an intellectual level and dismiss it. That's a sad loss because one of the things that I'm claiming is that the human being, the human person, is this extraordinary thing. And that's a view of man the modern world does not have. 
So what we're reading is so central to our faith, and it's a view more and more lost to our faith. So, Karen, you look thoughtful. It's sounding like these different spheres are not levels, but just a wide our vision. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's like a deepening of our vision, you know. I'm just amazed. I think what Dante's given us is extraordinary. Just extraordinary. Just extraordinary. Um, what is this wonderful vision that you wanted to give someone? This is it. Oh. Tina, or sorry, Maria, Maria. Maria, what's your response to this? No response. <laughs> oh, don't tell me. I don't believe that. You don't respond. You don't have a response to any of this? I do not believe that. I'm just wondering what your response is to, you know, the whole argument that I'm making that Dante's showing us this extraordinary vision that's our inheritance, our faith, and yeah, I like it. I think it's very enlightening and deeper, like deepens our faith. So yeah. It's Okay, let me let me let me stop. Any any further comments? I'm gonna see if I can rush through the what we've done and pick us back up. Any last comments before we go ahead? Yes, Doctor Bob. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yes. It's so good to hear your voice again. Truly. <laughs> yeah. Missed you. I feel I feel like uh, this is a journey, as it just like uh, Virgil took Dante. Through yep. purgatory and all that. Yeah. Uh, I feel like you are taking us as a guide through the literally world of Dante. Yeah. But if we try to read it ourselves, oh. there are so many things that we miss. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate you pointing them out yeah. so we can understand. Yeah. Yeah. What it means in every step. Yeah. Thank you. No, yeah, you're welcome, Kay. Thank you. Truly, you're welcome, and thank you. Just so you know, I mean, I'm, I'm humbled. I'm grateful for your comment, Kay. Truly, truly. Um, just so you know, I, I feel the same way about Dante that, you know, and Virgil, that, that they have been teachers taking us. Um, so my gratitude... Um, and and Kay, come back here. Come, Kay, where are you? Two of you, come back. Kay, come back. Yes. Yeah. And I think at the same time it really helps to deepen our uh, Catholic faith, faith, and um, deepen our understanding yeah. of what yeah. our Catholic faith is. Yeah. But before you go, I wanted to say this too that that I'm not only grateful to Virgil and Dante and I, I can I cannot imagine my life without these people I just cannot they've meant so much to me but I have to say this to you too before you disappear again 
that um, I'm grateful to you guys, and I've said this, and I, I'm not sure that you hear it enough as I wish you would. I'm grateful to you guys that we are doing this together. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, with wrong motives. I say it genuinely. I'm grateful to do this. Um, I've, I've gone back to Dante now a number of times. I haven't done Dante, and I did it several years ago at the um, Francis Group. Um, I didn't, even then, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't remember saying then some of the things I've been saying for the last half hour, that coming back to it again um, has deepened it. And um, I'm grateful to you guys that we're doing this together. Um, there's, there's no way this would happen without you guys. I feel that so much of what we're doing is a part of a group. I'm grateful for your part in it, all of you, truly. Um, I say that genuinely. Um, I think you guys look at me as a teacher, and I am. Um, but I think all—I think of all of us as learning together. That we're doing this together. I, this wouldn't happen without you, and my gratitude for you guys is um, genuinely deep. So, okay, where do we go? Kind of like being in heaven. Sorry. It's kind of like being in heaven. Why do you say that, Connie? Go ahead. Why? What? We're all, we're all together. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yeah, good for you. It, you know, it's interesting, too, because right now there is no, neither nearness nor distance. We're all together. I don't want to, I don't want to go there. But, <laughs> <laughs> but just to take off from what you said, we have got to have a meal together, you guys. We've got to have a meal and a movie, do something to... Um, okay, okay, let's get me back get my feet back on the ground so um what to do turn to um 515 canto 21 dante ascends to the level of saturn and the glow of everything is enhanced deepened because now um, the other planets are behind them. So, I mean, just keep this, I mean, the, the comments that you guys have made, um, particularly the one, you know, that these are like dimensions, the spheres of reality, not levels, that, that at each step, it's important to see that a, a deepening of faith that takes us into a deeper reality is what's occurring if we read it literally, we're just thinking we're on these different planets and levels. And yes, we are. But the real meaning is that we're, we're entering more deeply into a faith. More is being revealed to us, stage by stage, part by part. And it's going to take us to a place where there's this greater whole that encompasses all of them. Okay. Um, let's see if I can pick this up. 527 um, Dante catches a glimpse of Christ O Beatrice loving guide sweet one she answered that which overcomes you now is strength against which nothing has defense if you're in the presence of Christ in, in a journey of faith how can you do anything but love him more to see him present yeah 
Open your eyes, look straight into my face. Such things have you been witness to that now you have the power to endure my smile. Remember, just before that, Dante could not look at Beatrice and he could not hear because, remember, Saturn at that point, in that point in our view, was the last planet. So we've reached a point where Dante has, um, how to put this, Dante's reached a point where the whole universe is his. He's, he's grasped it. But he's about ready to enter a world that is beyond it, outside of it, beyond. So he's reaching a point where the visible universe, as we know it, in time and space, is going to be uh, behind him. Okay. So now, in the in the in the canto before, he could not look at Beatrice and he could not hear, because if he had, um, Beatrice's smile would have blinded him. And the joy of heaven would have blown out his ears. So once again, here's another image that we're entering. Neither nearness nor did. You know, we're in neither time nor space. We're in a different dimension. It's important to hold on to that. The amazing thing is Dante doesn't give us this in abstractions. They're not ideas. It's all concretely realized. He allows us to experience this in our bodies because we're corporeal creatures. Um, in 27, um, Dante rises to the prima mobile, um, and it's here that he, he undergoes his, um, examinate, examinations in, um, faith, hope, and charity, um, I, I wish we could spend more time in them, but I'm going to leave it to you. The, the Well, I'm going to leave it to you because they're really important, but I, I, I want to leave you all with the, 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 the whole of it, the vision of it. Um, on page 553, Dante has reached the prima mobile, first mover, prima mobile. Um, that exists in God's mind. It's the motion that gives motion to all the other planets. This is Aristotle. If you believe, um, if you don't start with an unmoved mover, you have no way of explaining the world because each contingent thing creates another one. So they can't completely explain itself, right? Storm comes in here, um, it damages our roof, we have to pay, you know, we're in a world of contingencies. One thing affects another, causes another. But the Aristotle's argument is that you can't go on forever explaining things by contingency because they'll go on forever. There has to be a first mover, something that's not contingent, not created in itself. Otherwise, you can't explain things. They can't make sense of themselves on their own. So in the prima mover is the first mover. That's an image of whatever that motion is in God's mind that leads to the creation of the world, a world of secondary causes, contingent causes, as we know. Is that clear? When Dante looks back at the world, uh, 553, when I turned around, my eyes were met by what takes place here in this whirling sphere whenever one looks deep into its motion. I saw a point that radiated light so piercing that the eyes, its brightness strikes, are forced to shut from such intensity. The star which seems the smallest seen from here is set beside that point, like star by star, appearing in the heavens would seem a moon. 
So there's just two points here on page, I mean, I, I want to pull these together, 555. I heard them sing Hosanna choir on choir to the fixed point that holds each to his ubai, the place where they will, where they were and will be forever. They spin so swiftly, speeding in their bonds to grow as much like the point as they can, and they can in proportion to their sight. 556, those loves that circle around the other two are called the thrones. These are the eternal order. Because in Dante's scheme of things, God created the universe and he created angelic orders to oversee them. So the highest angelic orders are closest to God, the lowest are closest to us. So from one perspective, when he looks at the world, he sees the earth not moving and the, and the planets revolving around it more and more slow or more and more faster until you get to the seal point or the prima mobile it's going so fast you can't you can hardly not see it so that's the world from one perspective from a spiritual perspective when he looks at Beatrice and she's looking down and aware of God he sees a still point that's Boethius's still point that God is at the center moving so fast we can't see it moving he imparts motion to all the other planets. So there's two, pure spirit, two perspectives that intersect. One's material, and one, like the one that we've been talking about, is metaphysical, spiritual. And they coincide. They perfectly conform. How could it be otherwise if God created the world and he's present in all things? He's transcendent and imminent, outside, inside. Both. Um, I want to get to um, I think, let's see um, when Dante gets he go, remember he goes to Saturn to the fixed stars to um, the Prima mobile into the Empyrean, um, the world of eternity and gone. Um, it's at this point, back to 567, so we're back to the passage that, that Connie was enjoying and that I've read, you know, 567, there near nor far neither adds or takes away for where God rules directly, the laws of time and space don't apply. Um, Dante is um, about to reach his end. On 570, when he looks at the Imperium, the beatific rose, the, the, I don't know what to call it, the dance, the poetry, the beauty, the order, whatever is in heaven, it has to take the form of poetry. It is beauty in motion, courtesy, charity, goodness. As he beholds it, he compares himself to a barbarian on page 570. I think it's one of the one of the really beautiful similes. You all remember what a simile is? Anne, what's a simile? It's comparing something using like or as. Right. Yeah, it's just making a comparison, taking something that's familiar to help explain something that's not familiar. But you use like or and. It's a metaphor when you take like or and out. You know, so if, if, if um, I say, if Suzanne says, Robert growled at me today, 
she's liking me to a bear. You know, she she didn't say he growled at me like a bear. She said he growled. <laughs> she's describing the the bear in me. Um, a simile is making that comparison between something familiar to help us see something we don't see as well. Five seventy. The triune light which sparkles in one star upon their sight, fulfiller of full joy, look down upon us in our temporal or tempest here. If the barbarians coming from such parts as every day are spanned by Hellas, traveling the sky with her beloved son, when they saw Rome, her mighty monuments, the days of the Lateran built high outsoared, all mortal art were so struck with amazement that I coming to heaven from mortal earth from man's time to divine eternity, from Florence to a people just and just, you can imagine the main... Just Huh? Sorry. Just insane. What? You said just and just. Oh, sorry. What? Sorry, Doug. What? Up to a people just and sane. Yes. Sorry. Um, have any of you seen the movie Gladiators? The Gladiator? If you remember that movie, you remember when the gladiators are brought to Rome, and they're they're dropped off in the pre, you know in the front of the Colosseum, and they look at it in awe, because in their barbarian world they they never imagined that art could do that. So Dante's comparing this experience to that that entering the Imperium makes him feel like he remember the 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 contrast is always in Dante's poem from Egypt to Jerusalem. He's come from Egypt, the world, its imprisonment, its disorders, its injustices, its sins, its e our, our captivity. No matter how much we like to think we're free, we're in the world. And he's come to the New Jerusalem. So he's aware of this amazing difference that he's stepped into a new order once again. It's at this point on page 571 that I want to take a moment for because it lines up with the Virgil episode. It's just a touching moment. 570 at the bottom. By now my eyes had quickly taken a general plan of all of paradise, but had not fixed themselves on any part. And with new kindled eagerness to know, I turned around to ask my lady things that to my mind were not still clear enough. It's natural for him. She's been teaching him all along. It's like turning to Virgil. He turns to her. What I expected was not what I saw. I thought to see Beatrice there, but saw an elder in the robes of heaven's saints. This is Bernard, St. Bernard. Um, and I'm going to ask a question about why, why Bernard instead of Beatrice. Beatrice leaves. She takes her place in the uh, beatific rose. 572, from bondage into freedom, you led me by all those paths, by using all those means which were within the limits of your power, says you went into hell to get Virgil. You did all these things to help me come here. Such was my prayer, and she so far away, so it seemed, looked down at me and smiled. Then to eternal light she turned once more. She's left. She looks at Dante. He's aware that she's there. But now he's in Bernard's hands. The holy elder spoke that you may reach your journey's perfect consummation. consummation now. I've been sent by sacred love and prayer. Can you stop? Uh, fly, th fly through this heavenly garden with your eyes, for gazing at it will prepare your sight to rise into the vision of God's ray. Remember what we're doing. We don't know how this is going to happen. 
But what we know, what Dante is showing us, is that at some point in faith, in the presence of God, we will no longer be this puny little thing. The human being will stand astride the universe. You know, that he will see this great thing and realize that there's something divine in him. God became man so that man could be, you know, that God gave us something divine. When he was here, he gave it in the Eucharist to take it with us, to grow in that, that quality that only a God could give us. Fly through this heavenly garden with your eyes for gazing at it will prepare your sight to raise into the vision of God's ray. The queen of heaven for whom I constantly burn with love's fire will grant us every grace because I'm her faithful one, Bernard. As one who comes from someplace like Croatia to gaze on our... Now hold on to this. To graze on our Veronica... Talk to you. Um, as one who comes from someplace like Croatia to gaze on our Veronica, so long crave for he now cannot look long enough. And while it is displayed, he says in one thought, O Jesus Christ, my Lord, the one true God, is this what your face truly looked like then? Just so did I, while gazing at the living love of the one who living in the world, through contemplation, tasted of that peace. He looks at Bernard and sees in him an image of Christ. Now Bernard says that it, Beatrice has turned Dante over to him, Bernard, because of his devotion. He, he has a relationship with Mary that's necessary for Dante to complete his journey. Beatrice can't do it. It's Bernard. So we've got a serious question here. What does Bernard bring to Dante's journey that Beatrice can't? Now remember now that at this point, Dante earlier wanted to see Beatrice's face and couldn't look on it, and then finally he can again. Now he comes to Bernard, and he said earlier when he was looking when he was with um, Benedict, "Can I look at your face?" And Benedict said, no, not until you're there at the end. And now here with Bernard, he's saying, he looks at Bernard and he's seeing him in, in him an image of Christ. Page 573, so I saw as my eyes still climb from vale to mountaintop, there at the highest point, a light outshining all that splendorous rim. And as our sky where we expect to see the ill-starred shaft of Phaeton's chariot, burns brightest, dimming all the light around. So there and high that or a flame of peace lit up its center while on either side its glow was equally diminishing. All around that center, wings outstretched, I saw more than a thousand festive angels, each one distinct in brilliance and in art. At the center of this is Mary, with this angelic order surrounding her, intensifying the beauty around her. Um, go on over, um, 576, within the vastness of this great domain, no particle of chance can find a place. This is not a place of contingency. We're not in our world again, right? We're in this place where time and space, the laws don't apply. No more than sorrow, thirst, or hunger can, for all that you see here has been ordained by the eternal law with such precision that ring and finger are a perfect fit. Therefore, all those souls of hurried comers to the true life are not ranked sima causa without cause, some high, some low, according to their merit, 
they're all there. Going over on 577. Thus, through no merit of their own good works are they ranked differently. The difference is only in God's gift of original grace. During mankind's first centuries on earth for innocent children to achieve salvation, only the faith of parents was required. But then when man's first age came to an end, all males had to be circumcised to give innocent wings the strength to fly to heaven. But when the age of grace came down, remember this is where Peter and Paul had their quarrels, because Peter, you remember, wanted um, to enforce the laws of circumcision, and Paul said, so there was a real quarrel, that um, that couldn't determine the ultimate salvation of a, per of a person. What determined the salvation was grace. So there's these different ages unfolding that are taking people closer to free will, freedom, grace, love. Then when the age of grace came down to man, then without perfect baptism in Christ, such innocence to limbo was confined. Now look at that face which resembles Christ the most, for only in its radiance will you be made ready to look at Christ. So he has to look at Mary. Now what's happening for a moment? Because I'm going to get to the end. I'm going to read the end here. Um, when in Canto 33... Bernard is going to make this prayer to Mary for the grace that Dante needs. And through this grace, Dante will be able to look at the Trinity. That's where the poem will end. But I, I want to read that because it's, I want to end with that. But here right now, why does Bernard take Mary's, or I mean Beatrice's place? And what are we learning? You know, why this focus on faces? Bernard... Bernard, here, here, Doc, has a face resembling Christ's, and Mary does too. Hello. What's going on? Real. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I've been, you know, at the talks that I've, that was a central. We shall be like him, for we shall see, for we shall see him as he is. What's going on? Why Bernard? Why can't Beatrice finish this? And, uh, I mean, in some sense, obviously, it's because of his devotion to Mary. But why is this crucial now, at this point, for Dante to finish this voyage? Can you hold on for a second? Doc! 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 We've just had a call from a Can you give me one second? Sorry. Doc! Sorry, you guys. It's a call from New Hampshire of a dear old friend. But um, what's your thoughts? What's your thoughts on on the questions that I'm asking? This is important because it's 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 fulfilling this journey, this quest. This is like all the epics we've read: the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. There's an epic quest. Dante's a new kind of hero. He's not a warrior. He's a learner. He's learning. His fight is going to be with what he learns, with his mind. His fight is not going to be with sword. 
He's learning. He's, he's surrounded by teachers. It's a new, it's a new kind of epic hero. Yeah? Everybody's with me? This is... Here he's coming to the end of his quest. So we've got all sorts of questions here. I think next week when we start, or when we come back, I'm going to pick up here. What does this do to the epic quest? How does it change it? What's Dante doing? But right now, my question is, we're at the end. Um, Beatrice picked up where Virgil left off. She's been so complete. Why doesn't she complete it? Why Bernard? And why this preoccupation with faces? We shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. Anybody? Robert, Robert. Bob, what do you, any thoughts on this? I'm lost. <laughs> Good place to be. Good place to be. Up there frequently. Well, <laughs> that's exactly how I feel a lot of the time, too, so I'm glad to know we've got in good company here. Well, let me let me offer a couple of things. I, I think here I'm going to mute you guys just to see if I can help the sound here a little bit. If you guys if you guys want to jump in, just jump in, okay? It seems to me there are two things that are going on. Um, one is that the closer we get to Christ. Remember that Dante is returning to origins. Great-grandfather, Cachuguita, his baptismal font, um, the Gemini, his return to Florence, his meeting with Adam. The whole journey is back to origins. In my beginning is my end. In my end is my beginning. He's returning to origins. So the, the closer he gets back to origins the more he resembles the one who made him. He was made in God's image. The phrase that the church father used was um, naturalite anima Christiani, the natural, the natural Christian soul. Naturalite anima, I think, um, Christiani. The image of Christ. Each person has Christ. Perdiso. No. The, uh, here, each Christ, each Christ, each Christ, sorry, I'm trying to talk. So <laughs> um, um, each person is made in the image of Christ. Okay. So, so uh, and, and when all of this started, if, we, if you go back uh, on page 572, as one who comes from someplace like Croatia to gaze on our Veronica, so long crave for he now cannot look on long enough. And while it's displayed, he says in thought, oh Jesus, why does he mention Veronica? Because the tradition was that Christ's image was imprinted on her, that, that cloth. So there are these constant allusions to Christ's image, that he's everywhere present in creation. Do we see him? So Veronica's cloth, um, Bernard resembles Christ. 
marries. She's described as the one most resembling him. So that the closer the people get, the the more they return or the more they recover their holiness. Let's say the the more their face will show that holiness, whatever it is. So even though the faces are very very different, in some way they will show some aspect of Christ. That's the first. The second, I think, is that. Um, I, I, I think this is sort of simple. Maybe, I mean, I, anybody jump in here because you, you may all have more to offer on this than, than I do. Bernard was devoted Mary. Mary was the one who was most directly related to Christ. She brought him into the world. It's as simple as that. She's his mother. She's his daughter. He created her. He's the creator of all things. In her, all the paradoxes of Christianity rest. But she's the one most directly related to him. She brought him into the world. It's only through her that we return to Christ. She is the one to take us back to him. Remember that when we did the Purgatorio, every one of the levels had goads and checks. The goads were images of the sin and the the, the checks were images of the sins and the goads were images of the virtue opposite the sin, the virtue that human beings had to practice to do a penance, to return to God. Mary was the first goad on every level. The mountain images, she's an image. The, the church images her. The mountain images her. It's humans trying to recover the virtues that Mary had because of the grace she was given. All of, Humility, meekness, you know, you can go through all the levels and remember she's the first one. So it's through her that we recover our lost innocence, strengthened by a grace, a mercy. So it, I think it's appropriate. I mean, what Dante's saying is that Beatrice, Beatrice is a great guide. She, she, there are no levels. I mean, there's, you know, there's, Dante shows the beauty of it, but um, that it was important for Beatrice to turn Dante to Bernard because of his devotion to Mary. And it's in the last canto that Bernard makes the prayer to Mary, 580. O Virgin Mother, daughter of your son, most humble, he asks that Dante be given the grace to see the Trinity to complete his journey. Let me read it to you because it's really important. 582. O light supreme, so far beyond the reach of mortal understanding to my mind, relend now some small part of your own self and give to my tongue eloquence enough to capture just one spark of all your glory that I may leave for future generations. For by returning briefly to my mind and something even faintly in my verse, more of your might will be revealed to men. His whole journey is to try to, so as an epic hero, his whole quest was to fulfill this calling that he had to go to God to bring him back to men so that men could experience him more completely. 583, O oh, grace abounding and allowing me to dare to fix my gaze on the eternal light, so deep my vision was consumed in it. I saw how it contains within its depths all things bound in a single book by love. There is nothing that is not included in God. He sees it all. 
He created it all. I saw how it contains within its depths all things bound in a single book, by love of which creation is the scattered leaves. <clears throat> Connie, this goes so to your question. We live in a world of scattered leaves. In God's mind, there's one whole. He sees all of it. The approach to God takes us closer to that vision. It's what Mike was talking about, I think, when he was referring us back to Boethius. Remember the, the, sil, the still point at the circus, the, the more, at the center of the circle? The more we approach it, the more we see his holes, not in parts. It's important to see the whole of things. How substance, accident, and their relation were fused in such a way that I might now describe it is but a glimmer of that light. I know I saw the universal form, the fusion of all things, for I can feel while speaking now my heart leap up in joy. One instant, I want to ask about this simile because it's one of the major similes here at the end of the poem. One instant brings me more forgetfulness than five and twenty centuries brought the quest that stunned Neptune when he saw Argo's keel. So remember, Neptune's a god of nature. Neptune's a god. He looks up and he sees these human beings. That's um, Jason in his quest. He sees a boat going over the water. He's a god. He's stunned that human beings could have done such a thing. I say that, I mean, you. I, I, I laugh at this because I, I think Suzanne laughs at me a lot. I'm so amazed often when I see a plane in the sky. I'm truly, I'm just in awe that you could get 200 tons up in the air like that. To me, I don't think I will die and not be amazed by that sight. It just amazes me. The sight that he's giving us here is that Neptune, a god, looks up and he sees this boat, you know, going, this technology. One instant brings me more forgetfulness. Here's the, uh, the question. One instant brings me more forgetfulness than five and twenty centuries brought the quest that stunned Neptune when he saw Argo's keel. And so my mind was totally entranced. What's, what's the meaning of that simile? Or that, that yeah, the simile likening um, Dante's experience to that moment when Neptune looked up and saw Argo's keel. One instant brings me more forgetfulness than five and twenty centuries brought the quest that stunned Neptune when he saw Argo's keel. He's overwhelmed at the moment. How, explain that. Can anybody... Oops, God, where? I probably took it out. It was in the kitchen dock. With the, I don't know if it... I think what's happening is Dante's experience plunges him into an experience that stuns him. He's overwhelmed by it. It's a stupor greater than that of... 25 centuries, you know, it's, it's that rich, that full. Um, it stuns him, just leaves him um, in a stupor. I mean, imagine what it would be like if you were, I mean, I, I don't know where Paul, you know, what Paul saw in his third vision, but I hath not seen, earth not heard. Paul came back to this world having seen something that human beings don't see. One is so transformed within that light that it would be impossible to think of ever turning one's eyes from it because the good which is the goal of will 
is all collected there, and outside it all is defective. Can anybody be in the presence of God and not feel that everything is, you know, fulfilled, brought to rest, and that the fact that people are present to him brings that to everybody there in their relationship with him and in their relationship with each other? Not that within the, the very... 584, not that within the living light there was more than a sole aspect of the divine, which always is what it has always been. Yet as I learned to see more, and the power of vision grew in me, that single aspect, as I changed, seemed to me to change itself. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Dante is getting closer and closer. He's changing, becoming more like God, more like Christ. And so able to see more fully into the, that triune um, nature. Within its depthless clarity of substance, I saw the great light shine into three circles in three clear colors, bound in one same space, three persons in one God. The first seemed to reflect the next like a rainbow on rainbow, and the third was like a flame equally breathed forth by the other two. How my weak words fall short of my conception, which is itself so far from what I saw that weak is much too weak a word to use. O light eternal fixed in self alone, known only to yourself and knowing self, you love and glow knowing and being known. It's the Trinity, one with each other, perfectly indwelling, one each with the other. That circling which as I conceived it shone in you and your own first reflected light when I'd looked deep into it a while, seen in itself and its own self-color to be depicted with man's very image, my eyes were totally absorbed in it. That is, the question he's asking is, God took on the form of man. How could an infinite God take on the form of man and go back into the Trinity um, carrying that with him, and still be eternal, infinite. Seemed in itself and its own self-color to be depicted with man's very image. My eyes were totally absorbed in it, as the geometer who tries so hard to square the circle but cannot discover, think as he may, the principle involved. So did I strive with this new mystery. I yearned to know how could our image fit into that circle how could it conform? How could an infinite God be infinite and still have a human nature? But my own great wings could not take me so high that a great flash of understanding struck my mind and suddenly its wish was granted. At this point, power failed high fantasy, but like a wheel in perfect balance turning, I felt my will and my desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. And you know that every one of his canticles, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, each of them has ended with that line, by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. Dante keeps taking us back to the natural order. That's where we begin. That's where our journey begins. That's where Christ came. That's where he has to return. So... Um, Dante has a vision, but it's beyond his powers to describe, to answer that question. How can the human image 
square with a divine person. Let me stop. Um, everything Dante has done, it seems to me, is to affirm, take a joy in, celebrate the human person, that he's this extraordinary creature, he's made in God's image, um, that it's through faith, through faith, that all of this can be known, that faith takes us into a mystery, um, it's one that's intelligible, we can make sense of it, we can know of it, will we ever completely penetrate it? No, because God's infinite. But he is intelligibility itself. So step by step by step, Dante was taking us deeper into our faith and helping us to understand aspects of it um, through his powers of reason. It's what St. Thomas did. It's what St. Augustine did. Let me stop. It's an, um, um, this is not just, the Paradiso is not just a theologically difficult you know, part of the Divine Comedy. It's not just philosophy. It's a journey of faith and it's rich with meaning. Um, Dante's showing us that there's this whole world um, that, that is being offered man that's so much greater than, you know, the small vision we have of ourselves. So in the modern world, we're just this puny little pygmy, this little thing. But in Dante's world, he's, I mean, he's giving us an image of God or a man astride. It's like that image I read from the Purgatorio when Dante looks into Beatrice's eyes and she's looking at the griffin. Or like that image of Cleopatra when she has that dream of Anthony. That there's this extraordinary world present um, um, to anybody who enters into that journey of faith. Let me stop. Let me, any questions or comments about what we've been doing or... Connie, you've got your hand up. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, I don't. Oh. Do I? <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know I had my hand up. But I did. Do, can we talk quickly about Adam's age and the age of creation? Oh, God. Or should we wait till next week? Because I know it's already late. Let, yeah, it's, let's wait. Um, th those are detailed things. Let me, I, I'll, I, sorry, I should have done it tonight. I got carried away with this other concern I had. I'm going to do a quick review when we start okay. up. Um, and I'll be sure to, to tackle those. Um, Predestination. Well, Baptism, pre I, baptism proxy. <laughs> Connie. <laughs> Dante did everything he could to answer things about baptism and predestination at the level of Jupiter when we were dealing with the eagle and you know there's uh, not I, I can read it. <laughs> there there's not much there's not much I can add. Remember that he leaves us with that image that be careful human beings that you know, trying to claim an understanding we don't have that issues like predestination and God's grace are ultimately mysterious. We we saw in the in the remember in the eye of the eagle Riffius yeah. and Trajan that that they were pagans that right. that there's a danger for human beings for us to jump to judgment when God's depth of vision is so much greater than ours and he he gave us that image of um, we can see the at the shoreline the depths but as we go out to the 
you know, the center of the ocean, we can't see the depths are too great okay. for us. It was a right. perfect image of God and his under predestination and and grace ultimately are I mean we we can we can penetrate them to some degree. We can say some things about them, but ultimately they leave us aware the, of a need to be careful because God is doing things very often that we don't see very well. Right, right. Ad, the Adam question I can answer if we can wait on that, but the others are. I think the major thing for me tonight was what, is what I started with, that, that this is an extraordinary poem, that he's, he's giving us an image of how extraordinary man is, um, and what a great gift faith is, that, that faith enlarges our vision of things. It doesn't shrink it the way the modern world thinks. That as a matter of fact, it, it opens a world to us if, if, we, if we live it, and at least in Dante's cases, as an epic hero, you know, a quester, if we can bring our powers of reason um, to what we do with it here in the world, there's so much in our faith that's, that's rich in intelligibility. It's, it's there being offered, and he's, he's brought it to us, so... Any last comments before we stop for the night? I'm so glad we did this together. The Divine Comedy is an extraordinary work. Pope Francis asked everybody to do it, and I, you're in rare company. I mean, you guys have done it, so. Um, okay, um, let's stop. Two weeks, Chaucer. He is simple and re you, he's so readable. It, there's just it's simple and straightforward. You don't have to go through all this theological complexity. They're fun stories. They're genuine fun. Um, some of them are raucous. Um, they're hilarious, but deeply Catholic. It's a deeply. This is at the height of the Christian age, Middle Ages, just before it collapses. You've got Boethius, so Augustine, Boethius, Saint Thomas, Dante. Chaucer, who's and right, little, who's a little body, and right, and right after Chaucer comes the Copernican Revolution and the Reformation, and we're in the modern world in a very, very changed world. So the last view, looking back from Dante forward, is Chaucer, looking back. Dante, in some ways, is more modern than Chaucer, and others not, but the two of them are right in that threshold of modernity. So we're looking at the Christian Middle Ages, just just about at the time when they're about to fade. So these two poets, Dante and Chaucer, are right at the center of our faith before our faith has to take on all the challenges of the modern world. So um, looking forward to doing it with you guys. You guys be safe. Keep us in your prayers, please. We will keep you in our prayers. Um, you guys stay safe, okay? Thank um, you. Let me know what your thoughts are on those questions that I asked at the beginning of class, okay? See you in a couple weeks. Bye. Thank you. Good night. Good night.